anyone get faith? Where does faith come from? What is faith? Scripture tells us that faith itself is a gift of God. If salvation is about us, it is not a gift. It is a result of work. If God sovereign and sovereignly called me, then He has sealed me. Welcome to the teaching ministry of Heritage Baptist Church in Ashland, Ohio. Each week, we bring you expository and practical teaching straight from God's Word. And now, here's Pastor Ben. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you have the Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be concluding our three-lesson arc on the eight observations of the lost. Today is part three of three, Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. As you're turning there, I'll share one of my favorite Elliot Schoenberger stories. When the Schoenbergers moved back from Chicago almost five years ago, almost four and a half years ago, because you guys moved back in like July of 16, was it? July, August of 16. Uh, the first Sunday that they were back, and some of you know this, but John and Beth I knew way back in their college days. I was able to do their wedding in 06. And um, uh, when, when they came back, you know, it was like now we all went out to lunch with all of our kids. So it was kind of neat because all the adults sat at one end of the table and the kids sat at the other end. And John and I were kind of watching Elliot and Silas. And we're like, I wonder if they'll be friends. And Elliot said, Silas, do you like Minecraft? And that was it. <laughs> that was kind of the beginning of their friendship. And they just talked and talked. And like, well, we don't have to worry about them. They're good. And so the adults got to spend some time together. All right, looking at Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 19, Paul says it this way. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we pray that as we wrap up this conclusion of this three-lesson arc, that you would just bless our understanding and deeply impact our hearts with the application that is present in this scripture. I pray, Lord, that you would allow my voice not to be my own, but to be yours and guided by your spirit through both the preparation and delivery of this message, both to the people that are here presently and those who are joining us online. May this be for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'd like to begin here with a recap of the last two weeks of what we've been studying. So it's going to show cause and effect the way that I have it worded here. From two weeks ago, we looked at the first four observations of the lost. And they were that the lost have a futility of mind. They have a darkened understanding. They are alienated from the life of God. And they are ignorant. And we paid special attention to be mindful that the word ignorance does not mean stupidity. Stupidity or foolishness is knowing the right thing to do, but not doing it. Ignorance is being unaware of the right thing to do. Then last week, we spent all of our time focusing on the causality. So the reason that these first four things exist is because their hearts are blind. Today, we're going to look at the therefore that because of their hearts being blind and these first four things being present, this is the result. They are past feeling, 
They have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. We're going to break down each one of those statements that Paul gives us so that we can unpack them and understand them appropriately. So, the first thing that I want to look at is this idea that we see in verse 19. These people are described by Paul in my translation, New King James, as being past feeling. So my first question is, what alternate translations do we have besides the phrase, they are past feeling? Josh? Callous. They are callous. And what are you reading from? Uh, ESV. ESV. That's actually a very good word in English. Sean? Having lost all sensitivity is another very good way to translate this report. Anything else that we would draw our attention to in alternate translation? So we have callous, we have having lost all sensitivity, and being past feeling. The Greek word here that we're looking at is the word apalego. And the word is defined like this. To cease to feel pain or grief, to bear troubles with greater equanimity. And I had to look up the word equanimity. It means a lack of emotion or a lack of empathetic reaction, to cease to feel pain, to become callous, to use Josh's word, insensible to pain, or apathetic. So we recognize very, very, very clearly that one of the tendencies that we're going to see in the lost, one of the results of being lost, is that they are not going to react to things, both positive and negative things, the same way that we do. Their empathy will be shortened versus ours. One year ago today, at the start of the pandemic, I ate out for the last time in a restaurant until maybe five or six months ago. I think, Jared, when we went to Casa, like maybe in August, no, no, it wasn't even that, it would have been like September. So for the first time in several months, I had not eaten out. And the last meal that I had, when the news of the pandemic was just starting to spread, you guys remember the kind of the tenor of the nation at the time? And we were wondering, are they going to shut restaurants down? What's going to happen? This is really strange. This is really weird. I was out having lunch with somebody, and the waitress said rather casually as we were asking her, are you worried about your job? She said, well, I'm not really worried about the pandemic. And this is what she said. If this virus is just killing off old people, I think that's a good thing, you know, because it's thinning the herd. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it wasn't that she said it as much as how callous and indifferent the statement was. Now, in her defense, I wonder going a year ahead and seeing the effect that the pandemic has had on all areas of our life, all over the world, if she would still feel the same way. But obviously, this struck a chord with me because I work with an elderly population that is terminally ill, and I see these people as treasures. Katie does the same thing. Kathy has spent much of her life doing the same thing. So this leads me to this connection that I want to put before you. Here's my tough question. During a sermon that I listened to maybe about six to seven months ago on a podcast from Tim Keller's ministry out of Redeemer in Manhattan, I heard him say, the opposite of love is not hate. It's actually apathy. How does that relate to the point that Paul is making here? The opposite of love is not hate, it's apathy. How does that relate? <coughs> Did this waitress hate old people? No. She was apathetic to 
She didn't care. Jared. Not to love. Apathy, I always try to explain it to my students this way when we talk about voting. You know, people that don't vote because they don't really care, they say, my vote's not going to make a difference, so right. I don't bother. Uh, this, this whole idea just basically is I'm living for the moment. If it makes me feel good right now, that's fine. I don't care about the future. I don't care if it hurts other people. It's all about my comfort level and am I feeling, am I getting the comfort that I desire? No thought to consequence. No consequence. No thought to consequence. Okay. There is a fantastic scene in a very, very popular um, television program where there's a marketing executive who has a young, up-and-coming kid who he's really offended. And this kid's very talented. And he said, I spent up all night thinking about what you said to me. And the main character looks at him and says, I didn't think about you at all. And it's basically like, I'm not taking my time and energy to hate you. You're not important enough to hate. I am completely apathetic towards you. So think about this. We often get very frustrated at the behaviors of the non-believers. Amen? It's frustrating, right? We are failing to realize in our frustration towards them that most of them even lack the ability to care about the things that they should care about. They are fundamentally broken as human beings. Now, when you're fundamentally broken as a human being, when you are apathetic, when you are callous, when you have greater equanimity, a lack of emotional response, do you see how that just paves the door for, paves the road right to the door for rationalizing anything that you want to do or say regardless of the cost or consequence? This creates a worldview that makes everything permissible. It makes postmodernism and relativism absolutely fine because you do not think about how your actions affect other people. And then it gets worse. Because of this lack of sensitivity and feeling, the next thing that Paul tells us, observation seven, is that they have given themselves over to lewdness. Now, I am... Very, very, very curious to see the alternate English translations. I purposefully did not look them up myself in hopes that some of you would have some fun ones. Mark, what do you have? Um, over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity. To the practice of sensuality, or, or over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity. Okay, so sensuality is the word there. What other words do we have? Lewdness, sensuality, Martha? Sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. What is that translation? NIV. NIV. Okay, sensuality, so as to finish the last part of it. Sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. Okay. And they are full of greed. Okay, that's good. That's good. What else do we have? Anything else that's noteworthy? All right. So let's dig into this very, very spicy Greek word. It's an Italian Greek word. The word is aselgia, aselgia, and here is how it is defined. It can be used as unbridled lust, excess, licentiousness, maviciousness, wantonness, outrageousness, shamelessness, and insolence. There is a temptation to reduce this word to rampant sexual desires and lifestyles that have infected the world and the church. But I'm actually going to go a very different direction with the concept of this word. 
Furthermore, I'm going to be bold this morning and declare that what I'm going to talk about in regard to nostalgia is even arguably more relevant than the rampant sexual misconduct in our culture. And it has to do with this idea. Sexual misconduct has been with us since the dawn of time, since Adam and Eve. There is nothing new under the sun regarding sexual misconduct. Furthermore, I'm not encouraging you to do this. I'm saying it as a point of history. For any of you who think that we live in a lewd culture, study the ancient Romans and Greeks. And you will soon understand that we are puritanically conservative by comparison. This word, aselgia, is one of those Greek words that means so much more than what we often reduce it to in English. It's not wrong to call it sensuality, but can you see how Mark's translation and Martha's translation, it was ESV, Mark? NASB. NASB and NIV, really, it's very obvious in their definition of talking about sexual misconduct, which is not wrong, but it is certainly not the fullness of the word aselgia. The word aselgia means so much more than we realize, and I want to anchor that word in a word I have up here on the overhead that is much more important and relevant to our culture today. I want to look at the second to last word in this list. The word shamelessness. I'd like to offer up two very relevant examples of shamelessness that are particularly poignant to the culture we live in today in 2021. Cancel culture is shameless. Instead of seeking meaningful discussion, our culture eliminates the worth of entire groups of people because they are determined to be not worthy of consideration. Shameless. Somebody makes a mistake or posts a viewpoint that is objectionable and we eliminate them from existence in our minds. It is the definition of the previous word of completely going callous and numb to them. We become apathetic to them because we have erased them. It is shameless. It is shameless when the world does it. It is doubly, triply shameless when Christians do it. It is doubly, triply, quadruply shameless when Christians do it to other Christians, and they do, and I'll give you an example that will hit too close to home. Oh, my friend really likes Joel Osteen. And we immediately, immediately cancel any opinion that that person might have because what idiot would sit under Joel Osteen? Maybe they're not all idiots. Maybe they're young. Maybe they've never been exposed to anything else. Maybe Joel speaks to them. All of those are possibilities. And if you don't think that there's people in town right now saying what idiot would sit under Ben Roby's teaching, you're fooling yourselves. I am being canceled at the exact same moment that these other people are. It's just on a smaller scale. Because of the positions that I hold, the things that I'm willing to say that are unpopular, and so are you and so will you be. Secondly, and totally related to this, Social media conflicts are often shameless. Amen? Amen? To reduce a nuanced, critically important discussion to a Facebook post 
or a tweet limited to 280 characters is shameless. Both Christians and non engage in such barbaric, simplistic, and shameless behavior. One of the most striking things that I've ever heard people say in this church is that they have had to unfollow other people in this church because they just couldn't stand the rhetoric anymore. I know that this happens right here. I know because some of you have told me you have found yourselves at a point of exhaustion. Are tensions running high? Yeah. Has the tone of a lot of our memes and tweets and posts changed a lot over the last 12 months? What do you think? You tell me. Yeah? And have we often, in an effort to get a laugh or to get people who agree with us, to say hooray, said something that could very reasonably have been interpreted as incredibly offensive to other people that we sit next to on a Sunday morning because it was more important to us to get our dig in than it was to glorify or amplify Christ. I asked you guys two questions back when Facebook posts became divisive, way back at the head of the pandemic. The two questions are very simple. Before you post anything, ask yourself, one, is this divisive? Secondly, is this the best representation of Christ I can give? And if you answer no to either of those posts, don't do it. How many of you have gotten off of social media altogether or come very close or shut down your accounts or moved away from them? Right, because it's exhausting. And it's particularly exhausting. It's one thing if we see someone that we either don't know or have little regard for post something ridiculous. We don't give it much thought. But does it not break our hearts when people that we know represent Christ say something that it's, it's not that they disagree with us. That's not the point. The point is not disagreement. The point is that it's done in such a cutting and superior and smug way that you say to yourself, I don't want to engage with them, so how in the world will a lost person want to engage with them? This is a problem. This is a selgia. This is shamelessness, and it's one of the eight conditions of the lost that we have to shed as a people. Somebody please agree with me. Okay. Now, I think there's two ways, two ways to shed this. One is to get rid of it completely. And I don't think that that's, now on an individual basis, you may say, like, Rob, you don't have a Facebook account, right? You do? No, do you have a Facebook account? Okay. Who's I thinking of? I don't. Ah, you don't. Yeah, okay. How many, how many of you don't have, have, have any, any social media accounts? Tom? Okay, kids, you don't count. You, you're not aware. My kids don't count. My kids don't count. No. Um, the point is, that is one way. And I'm not condemning that. If it's not your thing, if you don't see a value, totally, it's totally fine. A lot of you are like me, 90% voyeur. I get out there to see pictures of my friends' cats and funny memes, right? That's, that's the whole point of Facebook as far as I'm concerned. Hilarious videos of infants falling in the snow. Could watch them all day, right? <laughs> Uh, I post them sometimes. And I think that's fine. I think, I think that's totally fine. Um, also to stay in touch with people that, that physically, particularly now, the distance is harder. So step one is, or option one is, don't engage at all. Option two is, engage correctly. Those two options leave no room for engage shamelessly or incorrectly. And I would say, if you find yourself engaging incorrectly, go all the way back to get rid of it. If you can't handle it, don't do it. And this is something that I have personally been convicted of. 
It has caused me headache and heartache as a pastor, certainly as a school administrator. You would not believe the things that I've had to weed through at a Christian high school regarding social media posts. And even in hospice, we have had instances where employees have posted things that have been inappropriate that have come under review. It's a really slippery slope. I'm not saying don't engage. I'm saying engage with the full armor of Christ as you go. So, here is my question as we reflect. And I will offer you my thoughts after we hear from the congregation. How do we, the body of Christ, be less shameless and more worthy of he whom we represent? How do we tangibly, actually do that? It is critically important that we leave this question, or leave here with this question answered. So let's be careful. I'll call on you. I know you're stretching, but that's two hands up. I will do it. Shaw. I think we need to slow down and count to ten. Before responding to a post or a comment, just let it simmer for a little bit so that we are not out of emotion, but out of our capacity for empathy, respond more appropriately to someone. Huge. Mary. I think we have to remember that what comes out of us is what we are filled with. And if we are not filling ourselves with the words of Christ and his example from Scripture, then your emptiness is not something that is going to spill out and represent Christ very well. You know, whatever you're filled with is what will come out. When I was 18 years old, before I was saved, I was a senior in high school, and I got into an argument with a kid that I wasn't really friends with, but we had known each other for several years. He was from India, his name was Sachin, moved by Sachin. And in the midst of the argument, I said, go back to where you came from. I was immediately washed with shame. That was not the way that my parents raised me. It was not what I believed. But like a lot of teenagers who get emotional, they say stupid things that they regret. I was later counseling with my English teacher, who had both Sacha and me in the same class. And I told her what happened. And this was the very painful challenge that she issued to me at the time. She said, you need to ask yourself where that came from. As Mary said, it didn't come from a vacuum. It didn't come from nowhere. Something in you, not necessarily believed that, but felt that you could go to that racial card, and it betrayed everything you believed in. And this is before I was even believed. I thought I was, but I was. So I think Mary touches on something really important when we find ourselves, whether we execute the send or not on the text or the post, if we're filled with anger, then part of the question we have to ask ourselves is, what are you not filled with? Because if you were filled, oh, it says it is finished, it's Easter. If that used to be the fruit of the Spirit. If you were filled with love, joy, peace, peace patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control, you would not feel the need to do two things, respond immediately or aggressively. So really, our own visceral reactions to these things tell us more about ourselves and the condition of our spiritual maturity 
than they do about the offensiveness of the post. I don't care how offensive the thing is. I don't care how dead to rights you have them. I don't care how well you know you could blow them up, embarrass them, abolish them. Take a minute. Take a pause. Five years ago, a pastor that lives here in town that I respect deeply posted a video of Mark Driscoll, the pastor from Seattle, who theologically, on most things, I get along very well with Mark Driscoll, and he was talking about how stupid video games are. Obviously, I had a reaction to this. And so I took a minute, I thought about it, and then I reached out to the pastor, and I said, can we grab lunch? Yeah, sure. And we had a wonderful conversation where I said, I think that was a little short-sighted and probably offensive in ways that you don't realize. Offensive? How? I said, well, it offended me. I'm a former pastor. I'm a former pastor. I'm, I'm a current pastor and your friend who plays video games. I'm soon to be a former pastor if I stay on this line of fire. And he was shocked, but appreciative that I handled it the way that he did, because I could have just I could have just either not responded, apathy, or I could have blown him up on social media and called him an idiot and a moron and short-sighted and not connected with the culture, blah, blah, blah. I could, have, I could have called him all those things that my flesh was screaming at him. But in wisdom, instead, we went out to lunch, and then something fascinating happened. <laughs> no, he didn't start playing video games. <laughs> and everyone else happened later after. About a year later, he called me and said, hey, Ben, can I have a conversation with you about mixed martial arts? I said, yeah, sure, why? said, I don't know anything about it. I've got a bunch of young guys in my congregation who watch it and love it. And when I see it, I just see it as human cockfighting. I just see it as violent and barbaric. And I don't see the sport in it. And I know you're really into it. Can you help me understand? Yeah. Went back to the same restaurant. Had a great conversation. He greatly appreciated my insight into it. And um, it was good. I think our relationship grew because of that. So, thank God I didn't respond to the initial post about video games in either a dismissive or escalatory way because I know he never would have called me a year later to discuss anything further because he wouldn't have respected my position, nor should he have. How do we, as the body of Christ, be less shameless and more worthy of he who we represent? Two points. One, Do not be afraid with respect, not arrogantly, with a high level of tact and class. Do not be afraid to call out another believer who engages in this type of behavior, especially if they are a member of this church. You have an increased level of responsibility to hold your brothers and sisters accountable to that which we all aspire to, which is the glory of God. Always follow Matthew 18 protocol. If you're not sure what that is, come talk to me or go to the church's website. There's a three-part sermon series on conflict protocol, confrontation protocol. Please follow that to a T. But we cannot be afraid to hold each other accountable. That's the giver. That's a tough lesson. Here comes the toughest thing I've probably said from this pulpit in over a year. Point number two. If you're being challenged, if you're receiving the criticism, don't be so defensive and take things so personally. Grow up 
and hear the criticism and work through it with prayer and counsel and see if the Lord is bringing something to you that you need to work on. Whenever someone comes to me because they're upset because of something somebody said to them, the first thing I say to them is, stop. Ask yourselves, if the message was delivered from a different person or with a different tone or both, would you have listened to the content of it? And if you would have, if you would have, then you need to, for the moment, divorce yourself from the messenger and the delivery method and just say, is there truth in it? Is there something that I need to repent of? Now, I have had conversations with people where I'll go back to them after biting my tongue so hard I bit through it and said, you're right, and I owe you an apology. And this does not justify my anger, but I would encourage you to maybe approach correction in a different manner next time. Because when you approach it this way, you can lose your audience. And they can say, I don't care what you think. I don't care what you think is cancel culture. So do you see how the seeds of our own defensiveness lead us to become this silly foolishness of cancel culture where we just completely become apathetic about somebody else's viewpoint and write them off, not because they're part of a different political party, not because they have a different viewpoint on God, but these are people that sit to our left and our right on Sunday morning worshiping the same God in love? This is a problem. Generally speaking, and boy, kids, Vea, Silas, Ronks, all my teenagers, Elliot, almost there, you need to learn that when someone corrects you in Christ, they love you, and that is not your time to be like, you yelled at me. My feelings trump the facts. Grow up. That's one thing to say that to a teenager. They do need to grow up. It's a horribly frustrating thing to say it to an adult. And, and listen, the way I'm delivering this sermon, you guys are probably looking to your left and your right like, who screwed up this week? Ben is just killed. No one. The answer is no one. This is not about any particular instances that I am dealing with as a pastoral counselor. This is about us as a church over the last year of a high-stress, low-taco time, right? High-stress, you can't get tacos. When there's a shortage of tacos, stress goes up. It's scientifically proven. Okay? You do that for long enough and people get edgy and they get irritable and they get angry. And I don't want to see the way that the world has remedied that creeping into our congregation because we're not about our own convenience. We're about Christ and Him crucified. Amen. Okay. I got one more point. And then I'll calm down. <laughs> Observation eight. The final thing that we see in this list is that because of everything we've discussed, the final end result is New King James, they work all uncleanness with greediness. Alternate English translations. What do we have? I know we've heard a, a couple of them. What do we have in alternate English translations? Uncleanness with greediness. Those are the two words I'm focusing on. Sam? Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Joey? With a continual lust for more. With a oh, that's so. What are you reading from? Boy, that's that's a very thought for thought. 
not, it's not, it's not a bad, it's not wrong, but it's a very thought for thought translation. Mark, what is the next piece of this is, Compare this. Joey's reading from a pretty heavily thought for thought translation in the NIV. Mark's reading from a word for word translation. Every kind of impurity with greediness. Every kind of impurity, because it's very close to what I have in New King James. Okay, let's break this down. There's two Greek words that we're looking at here akrathesia and planesia. These two words put together, they turn, there's what we see as unclean and greediness. The definition of agathiosia is impurity of lustful, luxurious, prolificate living, the impureness of motives. What drives them is impure. Definition of our second word, panoxia, greedy desire to have more or covetousness. Here's my definition of these two words together. This is how I would place this or how I would paraphrase it, so to speak. With impure motives, the lost seek more and more of what the world tells them will feel good, even if it's temporary. That's the rubber meets the road, Pastor Ben, definition. With impure motives, they seek more and more of what makes them feel good according to the world's standards, even if that thing is temporary. And here is my final tough question. How do we show them a better way? Brandon? I think part of it is our example of how we act in public. How if we're, we're that weird Christian guy in the friend group that is always at peace and then really slow to react and slow to anger, you know, that stirs up questions in their minds like, yeah, yeah. If you behave in such a way that makes them say, what are, what are you doing differently? What is motivating? That, that's a huge answer to that question. It's definitely going to fit into my answer, I'm sure, in a second. Other thoughts. How do we show them there's a better? We know that there's falseness in this top thing, right? We know that, we know that the world is, is going to tell them it's going to feel good, and it's not going to last, and they're still going to seek it, and they're going to want more and more and more. Joey, read that idea again for me. You saw the finger? Yeah, with a continual lust for with a continual lust for more. I remember Warren Buffett being asked, um, you know, uh, he basically, they, they basically said to Warren Buffett, how much is enough? And you know what his answer was? He said, let me quote Norman Rockwell. And Norman Rockwell, Rockefeller, not Norman Rockwell. <laughs> 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 All right, let me, I appreciate your grace this morning. And the way Buffett answered this was he said, how much is enough? He said, Rockefeller said, just one more dollar. Always. Always just one more dollar. Right? These men have made money you can't spend in a lifetime. It's almost impossible to spend that amount of money in a lifetime. It's more than we can ever fathom. And yet there's still hunger. David though the Lord was not pleased with it, lived in a period of time where he was allowed to have multiple wives and he still went after Bathsheba. This tells us all we need to know about human nature. Before I show you my answer, is there any other thought? How do we show them a better way? Any other thought? Anything? Richard? Uh, pray for them. Prayer is a huge part. This is it. Let me combine those two things here. We must both explain and demonstrate, Brandon, the antithesis of the concept at the top of the slide. In other words, we, as opposed to them, this is what we do. 
With pure motives, we speak less and less of what the world says is good because we seek a joy that is both superior and eternal. Kathy, this is the connection to the Sunday school. Okay? We seek after, Kathy, how did you characterize it? The joy of Christ? Do you remember the joy what you said? Of the, Lord is our the joy of the Lord is our strength. That is us seeking after something which we recognize is far superior to anything the world can offer, and it is far eternal, far longer lasting than anything the world can offer. And yet we understand you cannot pursue both things. You cannot pursue what the world says is good for you and what God says is, is, is good for you. Uh, based on numerous scriptures, probably the most clear that comes to mind is you cannot serve both God and men. Or in, in modern day terms, you cannot serve both God and your gut. You cannot serve both God and what your human flesh wants. Now the wonderful creation that comes about in the new creation of someone being in Christ is that slowly and surely through the process of sanctification, what we want is what God wants for us, and then we are filled with the greatest substance of joy. So, to explain the gospel, and then also, as Brandon alluded to, to demonstrate that when everybody else is freaking out, we're good. When everybody else is losing their minds, we're like, yeah, I'm fine. This is one of the things I thought the church by and large failed at during the last year in our country. There were not enough Christians being like, I'm fine. God's in control. We were flipping out about our liberties. We were flipping out about our freedoms. We were flipping out about the election. Did you guys hear we had a controversial election? Did you guys know about this? Yeah. We were flipping out about candidates. We were flipping out about the Senate. We were flipping out about bills and laws being passed. Some of you right now are simultaneously spending your stimulus and angry about it. <laughs> I'm just spending. And I thought we dropped the ball. I thought we missed a lot of opportunities to just sit in the corner of the room and grin and wait. And someone said, why are you so calm? Our world is falling apart. We could have said, no, it's not. None of this is surprising, my God. None of this is catching him off guard. And therefore, none of this is consuming me. I am consumed with Christ and him crucified. And that's going to last a lot longer than this pandemic. I know I missed opportunities to act that way. Did you? What's the biggest problem with the pandemic slowly coming to a close and us getting back to normal? It is this. Much like 9-11 of 20 years previous, eventually life will get back to normal and we'll start filling our lives and our minds and our news cycles with things that are of no consequence. We will start getting frustrated by things that we think we have control over that we don't. We will take our attention away from God and we will buy the lie of distraction of politics and sports and entertainment and vacation and cars and consumerism. And we will miss opportunities to save others through the explanation and the demonstration of the only thing. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to this message from Pastor Ben Roby and Heritage Baptist Church. We welcome your feedback or questions. You can find us online at hbcashland.com or connect with us on Facebook. If you found this message helpful, please share it with a friend or loved one. Again, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next week.